That's beautiful. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. My name is Chris Colquitt. I'm the senior minister here, and it's a joy to be with you and to welcome you to Trinity. If you're new, welcome. We're so glad you're with us. would love to meet and welcome you after the service. As Kelly said, you can come chat with him, or I'll be in the back. Um, We're so glad you're here. We're in the middle of a series going through the book of Genesis. And this morning, we uh, accelerate quite a bit uh, after spending a lot of time with the first family. We now get to make it all the way to the generation of Noah, which we'll begin to talk about next week. Our scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 4 and 5. You'll see we're going to skip some verses between verse 5 of chapter 5 and verse 18, uh, simply for the sake of time. We're also, I'm going to read this morning from the passage in Hebrews that's printed for you in your bulletin as well. Give your attention to God's word. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujael. And Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain, he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to me, listen to what I have to say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Then jumping down to verse 18, when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had no other son, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years, 
Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And then from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for our time. Great God in heaven, we rejoice that you have brought us here this morning. What a gift it is to sing your praises and hear your promises, Lord. Thank you for answering our confessions with grace. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in this, your holy word. Lord, we couldn't know you if you didn't tell yourself about us, and we rejoice that you have. And ask now that the Spirit who breathed these words out, who accomplished the events recorded herein, that that Spirit would be among us, that he would speak in and through me and in all of our hearts, that we would see and treasure Christ Jesus, our Lord and our only hope and salvation. It's in his name that we offer these prayers. Amen. So after we've spent five chapters, four chapters, with the first family, um, we speed up and we get through the entire pre-flood history in what amounts to 42 verses. And Moses, in writing this story, tells it through the lens of two genealogies. The genealogy of Cain, the line of Cain, and the line of Seth. And this was a common way in the ancient world to tell history. We see other examples of it in the Bible. This is the parts of the Bible in your Bible reading plan that you get bored and skip. These are genealogies, and they can be a little bit boring to read, but they're really significant, and they're an important way that the Bible tells us history. Just a couple of notes on genealogies before we jump into them, which might be questions in your mind as you look at this text. The first is that in biblical genealogies, in ancient Near East genealogies, sometimes there are gaps in generations. So the son of X may be the grandson of that person or further down the line. And we see this demonstrated in the Bible, um, and it's important as we read this text. This is not necessarily uh, the only dudes in the line, as that, as that were to be, right? There may be some gaps. The second thing, which is maybe even more on your mind as you read about Methuselah, is that we have these giant ages in Genesis chapter 5, right? Jared lived to be 962. Methuselah, if we kept reading, lives to be 969. What in the world is going on? I want to get that out of the way so that we can focus on what we need to focus on here. So let me just tell you, first of all, we don't, we don't know for sure, okay? Um, it's not totally clear what is going on here. One possibility, and it's a good possibility, is that what we read here is, is indeed the literal realistic description of the number of years that these men lived. The flood is coming, and a lot changes after the flood. And, and the way the Bible understands history, in many ways, we have a recreation of the world after the flood. And so it's possible that something about human life and the way that we age changed as the flood came and as we entered into the new age. So that's one possibility, and it's a good one, and it's, it's the most straightforward one if you read this passage to yourself. There are two others, though, that we'll throw out there for you to think about, or at least be comforted by if you can't believe that someone lived to be 969 years old. One is that sometimes these genealogies, 
the names can refer not to that person's lifespan, but to that person's line. So um, that person's line lasted 969 years, uh, and then there was this new line that came in within the broader uh, line of Seth. So that's one option, and that's plausible, and there's, there's examples of that. The other option uh, is that there is a multiplier applied to the number of years here. And there, there's, good ex- there's good examples of this in other cultures. It's not totally clear. It's not actually at all clear that's what's going on here. But if you divide the numbers by six, uh, you get to a number that at least for the age of conception makes sense, and then we still have pretty long lives. But that's another option that there's examples of in the ancient Near East around this time. Do we know which they are? We don't. And that's okay. We're, that's, that's mystery to us, but that hopefully clears the way for us to engage this text in what it has to reveal to us. So we have this whole history of the pre-flood world told through these two lines, through Cain and through Seth. Cain representing the unfaithful line, the apostate line, and Seth representing the faithful one. God's judgment in the flood is going to wipe out Cain's line, and everything's going to go through Noah, who's a descendant of Seth. But as we're going to see in a few weeks, very quickly after the flood, that same division between the apostate line and the faithful one will emerge. And so the faithful line throughout Genesis and throughout the whole Old Testament, even still today, is a particular line and often a very small and unimpressive one in relation to a world that does not seem to acknowledge God. And one of the striking things we see in this text is that the world, much of it, cities, technology, is made by people who are not calling on the name of the Lord. Much of the world we know today, that's still the case. It's made and ruled and advanced by people who don't name Jesus as their Lord. And what do we do with that? That's what this passage is going to help us to think a little bit about together. What does it look like for us to follow the Lord, to name the name of Jesus in the midst of a world that does not all name that name, and in the midst of cities and cultures that are built in many ways by folks who do not call on the name of the Lord? In many ways, that's the question of our life as Christians. It was the question for for Adam and Eve's family outside of the garden, and it's the question for Christians today as well. That's our setup. Okay, if you're taking notes, we're going to approach this text under three headings, which is often the way we do that. Uh, First, we're going to look at the faith of Seth's line. I was going to make it the faith of Enoch and the city of Enoch, but that was going to be confusing because they're two different Enochs, which is part of the title, but we're going to go with Seth's line. So the faith of Seth's line, or if you want to say Enoch the faithful, and then second, the city of Cain's line. And then third, we're going to think together about what it looks like to be faithful in the city. So the faith of Seth's line, the city of Cain's line, and then being faithful in the city. That's what's going to guide us here this morning. So first, let's look at the faith of Seth and his generations. Genealogies as a genre in the Bible are often very sparse, which if you read all of Genesis chapter 5, you would see that. Most of these are just, he followed followed him, he lived that long, then he died. Again and again and again. It's mostly just names and years, and the guy died. So when there are details, they are important details. And we see this anytime there is a genealogy. So the few details that there are matter. 
And when we read Cain's line, we get details around their cultural and technological achievements. Builds the first city, develops agriculture and art and technology. But Seth's line, and it's the reason we skipped some of it, is pretty plain vanilla. There's not a lot of detail. But there are two details that matter a great deal, and we read both of those in the text that we read together. The first is in verse 26 of chapter 4, where we read that at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. In Seth's line, we see the beginning of people calling upon the name of the Lord. And then secondly, we see in this figure Enoch, one of the more mysterious characters in the Bible, in verse 24, that he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And as Hebrews makes clear, he, like Elijah, did not die. There's one guy in this history who walks with the Lord and does not die. He goes straight to heaven, exempted from death. I don't know if he passed go or not, or collected $200, but he just went straight there, okay? Which is pretty remarkable. Those are the two details we get in Seth's line. What is notable and massively important about Seth and his history is that it is the place where people begin to call on the name of the Lord. Now that's important because coming out of Eden, and I want us to think about this for a second, that's an open question. Recall, Adam and Eve walked and talked with God in the garden. They received direct verbal instruction on how to live. And they rejected him and chose instead to listen to the snake. And as a result, they were put under the judgment of God and kicked out of the garden, out of this place of God's special presence. First they hid from him, then God found them and said, you got to go. And so there's a question outside of the garden, which is, are these people going to be able to have a relationship with the God who just kicked them out? Don't assume the answer to that question. Cain did not assume the answer to that question, as we're going to see. Will the people of God, will the people God created, can they be the people of God outside of the Garden of Eden? Y'all see that tension in this? Will they call upon the name of the Lord? Is there a path to relationship with God east of Eden? Can we do that? That's a very important question. And as we saw last week, Cain and Abel started to try to do that. They both made an effort at that. They offered sacrifices to God, but they had very different results. Abel's is accepted. Abel is commended as being faithful, but Cain's offering is not accepted. It's rejected. We talked last week about what happens next, which ends up with Cain murdering his brother Abel. Failing to find God's favor and feeling God's judgment Cain moves away from God. That was last week's sermon. He does that decisively in verse 16, which we reread this morning. He went away from the presence of the Lord, which is a tragic verse in the Bible. Cain decides he's going the other way. Now, what's the key to Seth's faith and Cain's apostasy, which is a big fancy word for not faith? Um, Well, here, let's look again at Hebrews for help. I printed there for you verses 5 and 6. I'm going to read verse 4 because it brings in Abel again. Listen to Hebrews 11, 
By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him up. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And then verse 6 is going to be really important, so y'all pay attention here. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There's a principle here. What you believe about God, whether you draw near to that God, is dependent on how you understand him. What you believe about God determines your approach to God. Whether you approach God is determined by whether, what you believe about him, to put it two different ways. And Hebrews here says that you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In the context of Hebrews, we know that when the author is using the word reward, he's talking about eternal life. He's talking about the reward that waits the Hebrew Christians at the end of their death. And so we can translate this for our own help this morning. You must believe that he offers eternal life to those who seek them, to those who seek him. That there is life beyond this life, that there is life beyond death. Those who would draw near must believe that. The story of Cain and Abel and their lines show this principle on display. Because after the fall, God's displeasure and his judgment are real. They're deserved. They're made clear. But also revealed, and we've talked about this, is his mercy and his continued generosity and his patience. And the question for Adam and Eve's descendants is whether or not they're going to keep that second thing in mind and call on the name of the Lord. Will they believe that? Will they hear in Genesis 3.15 that the serpent will be crushed by a son of Eve? Will they hear in that the promise of life? Will they see in their continued existence the patience and forbearance of God and the promise of his mercy? Or will they look and see a harsh judge who rejects them and move away in fear and self-preservation? Those are the two options for the children of Adam and Eve, and we see those two options played out. Remember God's question to Cain in verse 7 of chapter 4. If you have your Bible, you can look at it. Cain's offered a bad sacrifice. It's not been accepted. He's upset. He hasn't killed his brother yet. And God comes to him and says, Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? It's a statement of God's justice and even his willingness to receive Cain. If you, if you offer a good sacrifice, I will accept it, God says. But Cain doesn't hear it that way, and he doesn't see God that way. Feeling his displeasure and ignoring his promise of mercy, Cain moves away, first killing his brother, and then in the guilt of that, running away from God altogether. To use the language of Hebrews 11, verse 6, he doesn't believe that God rewards those who seek him. 
He doesn't believe that's open to him, and so he doesn't draw near to God. And as a result, he and his descendants ultimately will forget about the existence of the Lord all together. It's a sad, tragic story. But Abel, and then Seth, and then his line, remembers and believes and trusts in the generosity of God and approaches him as one who somehow is going to have mercy. That's the story of the faith of Abel and Enoch, and that's what the author of the Hebrews is drawing out here. Now we need to pause here and, and, and examine our own hearts to see how this works in us. And I want to, in two ways. First, notice what the devil has done in this story all the way back from the beginning when he showed up in the garden. What's he trying to convince Adam and Eve of? He's trying to convince them that God is not generous, that he is arbitrary and capricious. He's trying to convince them to sin, which they do, and then having convinced them to sin, he convinces them that they are guilty and estranged. So they will move away from God. The devil's agenda in your life and through his lies is to convince you that God is not generous, that he is not merciful, and that your guilt has totally disqualified you from ever being in the presence of a holy God and that there is no way back, so you might as well run off that way. That's what he does to Cain, and that's what he's trying to do in each of our lives. Don't let him. Cling to the mercy and love of the Father as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you realize how much better a position we are than Cain, excuse me, than Abel and Seth and Enoch? They had to hear God's promise and believe that somehow, even though they were justly deserving wrath, that somehow God was going to make a way. And they did, and they called on him and said, I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm calling on your name. You made me. You and I, brothers and sisters, are so much more privileged. Because we don't have to think, how might this happen? And listen to Satan's accusing words saying, no, there's no way God can do that. He's just. We can look to Jesus Christ, who doesn't just give us some generic hope in the future mercy of God. He answers line by line the devil's accusations in our lives. He says, yes, you are a sinner. But Jesus has died for you. It's all been paid for. It's finished. It's accomplished on the cross. He rose from the dead victorious over death itself. When the devil comes to you and says, there's no way God can love you when you've done that and when you continue to do that, you need to look to Jesus and answer back, but Jesus Christ died for me and he rose for me. And he loves me. You can't make too much of God's love for you, brothers and sisters. If you are in Christ, you are a beloved firstborn son. Don't ever let your sin or the lies of Satan take that away from you. Make much of the love that you have in Jesus Christ. He's finished to work, the love is yours. This was the hope of Enoch and Seth. It's the reality that you and I have in Jesus Christ. Okay.
What about Cain and his line? I'm just going to throw them away and say that's too bad. Well, we are, sort of, but not really. Um, listen, let's look at Cain's line and what happens in his city. So Seth and his line gives us faith, but Cain gives us all the cool stuff, right? And what do we do with that? That's what I want to think about for a second. The only thing we know about Seth is that they called on the name of the Lord. What do we know about Cain's line? Well, they made all the stuff that we like in this world. Look at the text again with us. Cain sent away. He's ironically very worried about being killed. Uh, God promises that justice will prevail and that Cain will not be killed. And Cain starts a family and he builds a city. And then his descendants develop technology. We have the beginning of livestock management of music and the arts, of tools and manufacturing and technology, all through the line of Cain, at least as revealed here in Genesis 4. What do, we, what do we make of that? What's going on? We need to remember that Cain's whole existence and the whole existence of his line is owed to the mercy of God and God's patience and forbearance. Cain, and we can see this honestly even more than the apple story, right? The apple... Adam and Eve were like, you really need to kill him, God? They did, and that's what they deserved. Cain, it's much more clear for us. He killed his brother. He should be dead. And yet God lets him live, and not only does he let him live, he lets him be fruitful and multiply uh, and build cities and technology as he goes. Though Cain refuses to call on him, God continues to bless him in some ways. There's a term for that, and this is our theological term of the day, that you'll hopefully remember, uh, and you maybe have heard before, which is a term called common grace. Common grace is God's grace that's available to the whole world. It's distinct from God's special grace, which is the grace of redemption in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But God is merciful and gracious to everyone in this world in general ways, notably in not striking us all dead when we sin, and restraining the effects of those, that sin so that it doesn't get too crazy, and we'll see that in Genesis as we go, and then also in blessing us and providing us good things and letting us develop as a people. See, the idea of city and technology that come from Cain's line, they're not bad. They're not evil, and they're not presented in the Bible as bad and evil. They're dangerous, and we'll talk about that in a second, but in themselves, they're good. They're actually a fulfillment, a partial fulfillment of the creation mandate, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Cain's story is the story of men doing that, men and women doing that. He has babies. He makes a family. They create a city. They create justice. So, so good things are happening through the line of Cain. And in Revelation 21, when we see the very end of time, what we're getting from God in Revelation 21 is a city. Cities are not evil places. They're places where evil happens a lot of times, but they're not evil. So there's good happening through Cain, and that good comes by way of this idea of common grace. God's being gracious to all of his creatures, even as they are rejecting him and not calling on his name. And that's an important thing for us to see as we look out into our world. God sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's, a, it's part of his abundant goodness and mercy. But the city of Cain's not all good. And 
Genesis 4 makes that clear. Cain's cultural development bears the marks of unbelief. Here we can go back to Hebrews 11.6, which is kind of our decoder ring this morning. Um, Remember what it says? Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Cain's line, Cain first and then his line, has rejected both of those things. They do not believe that God is merciful and rewarding, and they've forgotten that he exists. And so what they are doing in their cultural endeavors, in their lives, is shaping a life in this world without reference to, their, to God, their creator, or to the eternal life that he promises. They're making the most of it without God and without eternal life. And we see that in the way that they engage in this task. Cain builds a city, and then what does he do? He names it after his son. And this is, begins a long history of people naming stuff after themselves. On the one hand, that's pride, right? That's, that's us saying we need something transcendent. It might as well be me and my line, right? I'm going to name something after myself. And on the other hand, it's actually an attempt at something like eternal life. I need a legacy. My son's going to have a legacy. My lion's going to have a legacy. I'm not going to call on the name of the Lord. I'm going to make a name for myself. And we'll see that in Babel in just a few chapters. We see that on display here. We see it also in Lamech's boast in verse 24. Lamech, the descendant of Cain, says, If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech gets it wrong in a couple of very important ways. Although the first thing to see is that Lamech, like his great whatever grandpa Cain, is terrified of death. And so he boasts and uses his power and technology right, to avoid death at all costs. He moves into injustice by killing people for slighting him. Right? But then he's profoundly arrogant. If you go back and look at what God said to Cain, he didn't say, Cain, you're going to go kill everybody. You're going to have vengeance on these guys sevenfold. God's saying, I'm going to have vengeance on someone who tries to kill you. Lamech, down the road, has translated that into Cain was this mighty warrior who would avenge the death of the threat of his death by sevenfold, right? Which is not true. Cain was a scared little baby, right? And then Lamech says, I'm going to avenge him 77-fold. So I'm I'm like God, but even better. That's what, that's what Lamech is saying. He's making sense of life in this world without calling on the name of God, securing his own life in fearful self-preservation. We see this also in Lamech's polygamy. He takes two wives. It's the first time we see that in the scriptures. It's definitely not what God said to do in Genesis chapter 2. You might even see it as a way to supercharge Uh, this desire to make a nation and a name for yourself, that's not clear in the text, but it might be there, right? That Lamech's trying to expand his influence by taking more wives and creating more children. The technology and the culture that are created here are good, right? But they're being put to ends uh, that are ends without reference to God and in many ways trying to secure life that God has promised and they don't believe that he will offer. So they want to be godlike and secure their life and maybe even eternal life. We can see this today. It's worth noting that our technology 
And we live in a time of incredible, we, we live in the best time so far, right? And, but, you know, our great-grandkids are going to think we were backwards. But for now, we live in this incredible moment of technological advance. And what do we use it for? We use it for great power, right? To become almost godlike. And then oftentimes, to avoid death and even to achieve some sort of eternality. And we could get into the weeds here about what's going on in Silicon Valley and how there's something called transhumanism, which is a wild idea. But basically, Elon Musk wants to implant chips and, and get technology that eventually you're going to get to live forever. That's, that's a stated goal, okay, of some of these, of these tech giants, right? Now, you, we, and I, we can sit here in our bucolic setting of Charlottesville and, and judge those crazy people in California. But the truth is that you and I, right, in various ways are doing the same thing with our resources and technology. We're tempted to at least, right? To avoid death in whatever ways we can or blind ourselves to its future existence so we can be happy in the meantime, right? And then to achieve power and control so that we don't need to rely upon God. That's what Cain's line was doing with their technology, right? They were making sense of a world without calling on the name of the Lord. Okay, so third point. What then does it look like for us to live faithfully calling on the name of the Lord amidst a culture and society and city that does not? This genealogy doesn't give us an interaction of these two lines, but we know from Noah, which we're going to talk about next week, that they were living side by side. And the rest of the biblical witness will show the faithful lion living amidst the unfaithful one. So what do we make of that? How do we live faithfully in this time? What I want to suggest is that we need a balanced sobriety. We need to both acknowledge the good that is in our culture and in our city, and we also need to understand the danger and the sin that is there as well. Two principles for us here. See, I'm actually getting four points in, but that's, that's just a trick. <laughs> Two principles. First, we want to live in the city with gratitude and caution. Live in the city with gratitude and caution. And it's important here to say city is not just a reference to the city limits, right? So living in Albemarle County is not going to get you out of the city thing, right? You can go buy a farm and live there. The city that Cain creates is society, it's culture. So it's, you can't, unless you're going to move away and withdraw entirely, which we shouldn't do, and we'll talk about that in a second, you're in the city. We want to live there in gratitude, but also with caution. We want to see it's good and be grateful for it. Justice, technology, these things are wonderful gifts of God. They're part of what God designed creation to move toward. But they're also, they can become malformed, and oftentimes the way they become malformed is in our hearts. It's not the thing that's the problem. It's not the technology that's the problem. It's the way that we interact with it. And here we need to ask ourselves some important diagnostic questions from time to time as we live in a city full of really cool stuff. Okay? Cool ideas, cool stuff, all that fun things. Right? Are you using your cultural goods right, for self-preservation, self-protection, self-care? That's the desire that... Cain's line was approaching. And that's Lamech's boast. I've got all this cool stuff and I can be like God. 
Do you become arrogant in your power? Do you use it to avoid death? Do you use it to calm your insecurities? We need to be careful here because we do. I do. We use the good stuff of this world to make lives that make sense without God. We make lives that make sense without God and we're trying to find a way to make a life that works without calling on the name of the Lord. We've got to be so careful. You're tempted to do that. I'm tempted to do that. I want eternal life and I'd just as soon get it myself. That's what Cain's line was trying to do. And, and that heart, that spirit is in our culture, all of our cultures around the world. So be careful. It's good. It's wonderful. It's also a dangerous place. That was the first thing to say. Second thing, we want to seek the welfare of the city while placing our hopes elsewhere. We want to seek the welfare of the city while placing our, our hopes elsewhere. And this is a nuanced point that is important to make. Um, Jeremiah chapter 29, you have this beautiful instruction to the people of Israel who are in exile in Babylon, which Babylon becomes this paradigmatic evil city all the way into Revelation. The people of Israel in Babylon, in exile, and Jeremiah the prophet comes to them and says, hey, y'all need to get married, have babies, build houses, go to city council meetings, seek the welfare of this city. You don't get to go away, right? You're here. Its blessing will be your blessing. And so there is a, there's this very important, right, and that continues into the New Testament witness, right, call for us to engage in the city, right? Not to withdraw into our um, whatever, right? We want to engage. We want to be involved. Being, a, being involved in politics, voting, it's a good thing to do. Civic life is a good life. But if we just say that, we run the risk of then thinking that somehow our engagement with that city will lead to the hope for which we long. And this is a point that Jeremiah makes clear is not how it works. Because if you look at the context of Jeremiah, and this is not a sermon on Jeremiah, but you're going to get a two-minute one right here. In Jeremiah chapter 28, Hananiah, the false prophet, is coming to the people of Israel and saying, hey guys, two more years, we're out of here, right? Rejoice. Y'all, we, we're, we're heading back to the promised land. Babylon's going to burn. And, and Jeremiah comes and says, no, 70 years. It's not two, right? Hananiah's a false prophet. He's giving you soft words because he wants you to like him. He's wrong. You're here for a while. Right? Seek the welfare. Get married. Have babies. Build a barn. But then in Jeremiah 30 and 31, just after he says to seek the welfare, Jeremiah says, And God's taking you back to the promised land. He is going to do it. And then in Jeremiah 50 and 51, he says God's going to destroy Babylon completely. So what does it look like for us to seek the welfare of Babylon? Well, it doesn't look like us saying that Babylon is going to become the new Jerusalem. That's not right, right? We seek the welfare of our city as we look forward to the city that God is building and preparing. If we kept reading in Hebrews, that would be what we saw. Abraham, in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 11, lived in tents because 
He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then summing up all the patriarchs, Hebrews says, as it is, this is verse 16, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We engage in Charlottesville and in Virginia and in the United States in all sorts of fun activities. Important fun is not the right word, actually. They're not very much fun at all. Seeking good and welfare, but always with an eye towards the hope that God has secured and will provide. Your work on the city council will not usher in heaven. Christ will do that. But we seek the good now. And doing that, we can have a balanced approach and understanding of what we're doing in this time and place. And one of the things we do looking forward to the hope of heaven is realize, why is God allowing this period of time to continue? Why is there one more minute in this day before Christ comes back? It's not so Charlottesville can become the new Jerusalem. He's preparing the new Jerusalem, and when Christ comes back, he's bringing it. There's one more minute in this day because God has not fully gathered his people to him. Which means that our efforts and energies in this life ought to be reflective of his priorities. Your work in the city, your vocations, they are good and beautiful. They serve the welfare. God gets glory from them. And yet the only reason there's one more minute in this day is so the elect can be gathered to Christ. So make your life about that too. That's why we gather in this place and that's why we go out into the city to pronounce the good news of Jesus. All right, I'm almost done, I promise. The key to this whole thing the key to this whole thing is believing in God the way that the, the, the patriarchs did in Genesis 5 and the way that's explained in Hebrews 11. Do you believe that God exists and will reward those who seek him with eternal life? That's the question, friends. Do you believe that? Why was Enoch taken to heaven? And why is that recorded in the Bible? It's a weird story. We've got to remember, this book is written by Moses and given to the people of Israel as they're about to go into the land of Canaan. And they're going to be living among people who do not call on the name of the Lord. And they're going to need to know that there is life beyond life. And Enoch stands as this forerunner for the people of Israel to say, this life is not all that there is. I'm going to look forward in hope to the city whose architect and builder is God, and I'm going to call on him even as I live in a world that does not. Where Enoch and later Elijah gave courage to those Christians, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, gives us even more. Enoch left and went away. Elijah was carried away in a chariot of fire. Jesus Christ came to this world. We saw him dead on a cross. He was buried, and on the third day he rose from the grave. We have a resurrection hope in Jesus. Look to him to know that there is a reward beyond this life, to know that you can engage in all that we are called to do in this place and yet do it with the hope that the promised land 
is coming, that the resurrection is real. You can seek the welfare of the city. You can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ secure in the work that he has done. Don't believe the lies of the devil. It's not on you. Christ has finished it. God loves you. He welcomes you in the blood of Jesus. Go follow him looking forward to the hope that he has secured. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do rejoice in this good news. Lord, help us to be faithful in our time. Help us to see the reason for this time. Help us to live in obedience to you, Lord. Would you make us as a people a blessing to this city? God, would you free us to go love in self-sacrificial ways our neighbors? And would they see in that the love of Jesus and the promise of a God who exists and rewards those who seek him? Oh, would many come to know your love? Would you protect us when we doubt that love? Draw us near, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.